Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Pepis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to another online edition of the OHC's regular Work in Progress talks. Work in Progress talks are presentations given by faculty and graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center about their research projects. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I'll moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. You can activate captions using the live transcript option. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. I'm delighted now to introduce our speaker for today, Timothy Williams, Assistant Professor of History in the Clark Honors College at the University of Oregon. His research interests include intellectual and cultural history, 19th century United States, gender and sexuality, and the American South. He earned his BA in history from Wake Forest University and his MA and his PhD in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of the book, Intellectual Manhood, University, Self and Society in the Antebellum South, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2015. He co-edited the 2018 volume, Prison Pens, Gender, Memory, and Imprisonment in the Writings of Molly Scully and George Washington Nelson, 1863 to 1868, part of the New Perspectives on Civil War Era series published by the University of Georgia Press. He has received awards and fellowships from the North Carolina Society and the Filson Historical Society in Louisville, Kentucky, the William L. Clements Library, the University of Michigan, and the Virginia Center for Civil War Studies at Virginia Tech. Tim is a 2021 Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellow. In his work in progress talk today, he'll present his project, Civil War Prisons and the Problem of Confederate Memory. Welcome, Tim, it's great to have you. Thanks, it's good to be here. Um, I wanna begin this work in progress talk uh, by thanking the Oregon Humanities Center, um, especially those who reviewed my initial application uh, and Paul, Peg, and Melissa, and Gina for creating a virtual OHC this year, uh, which I thought went so smoothly and was really enjoyable and provided a good sense of community. Um, so following two terms of sabbatical, uh, this fellowship term has given me the space to work on my book manuscript, uh, which at least for now uh, is entitled The Prison Question, Memory, Narrative, and Print in the Confederacy and the Postwar South. Um, I want to take advantage of the collective creativity of this interdisciplinary group uh, during Q&A, so I'm going to try, okay, that's, you know, the, the operative word, try to speak for about 30 to 40 minutes in order to have a rich discussion. Um, so what I want to first do um, is also acknowledge that I'm like sort of reading this from an iPad that's above my screen, so if I'm, if I'm looking like I'm looking like not at you, um, well, I'm not looking at you, um, but I would love to be able to in a normal setting. <laughs> um, so I first uh, will just give you some insight into my intellectual approach as a historian, um, and then provide some context for the book uh, and its significance. And then I'll um, share a story from the larger book project that I think illustrates uh, some of the major arguments and themes, uh, bearing in mind, of course, that this is very much in progress. Um, so the kind of history I write uh, is important for you to know so that you will not expect me to talk to you about military history. 
Um, I'm a scholar of intellectual life and culture in the Civil War era. I'm, a tra I'm trained in Southern history uh, and I'm particularly interested in um, the place of ideas in society. And by ideas, I like to think about sort of everyday ideas. So we're talking about small I ideas, small T thinking, small L literature. Um, so my first foray into this type of intellectual history, as um, Paul noted, and I'm gonna share my screen. Share. Play. There we go. Uh, was uh, my, my first book, Intellectual Manhood. Um, and basically this was a community study of uh, young men, college students, as they read, wrote, debated, and imagined their way from youth to adulthood in a university setting. Um, I really wanted to answer the question, what was educational about Southern higher education? Uh, as something that people surprisingly hadn't written about. Um, so after the book came out in 2015, I knew I wanted to continue exploring intellectual life and saw an opportunity in the Civil War uh, era and the post-war South. I really wanted to continue looking at some of the same questions that I was uh, asking in the first book, uh, particularly questions about you know, what people were reading and how they were talking about what they read. Uh, that was something that was really interesting uh, to do in my, my first book and, and sort of look at reception of texts and things like that. Um, but the question was, okay, that's really broad uh, for a country that's split in two and uh, has a lot of people, right? So I thought the best way to do this is to go into a community study. Um, and so I read a little bit about prisoners of war by, by the time um, I thought about this project and thought that that would be a unique subset um, and a good starting place. And it ended up being the whole project. Um, some of the first letters I read during the early stages of research was from a Virginian named George Washington Nelson um, uh, to his fiance Molly, and he went by Wash. And these uh, were a really wonderful collection to, to read and to sort of get myself immersed in uh, what people were writing from prison. Um, the letters revealed a couple navigating the uncertainty of the Confederacy, the horrors of war to be sure, but they were also navigating the uncertainty of their relationship. Um, and Wash during this whole time was moved between like five different prisons, uh, never knew when he was gonna go. It was very confusing. Information was hard to come by for both him and for Molly. And over this time, you know, they, they struggled um, to get each other, right? And they began to wonder whether they'd ever be reunited or even still love one another once he returned if he didn't die in prison. So after the war and Wash's release, so he survived, they got married and Wash decided to write his memoir of prison life, probably for publication. Uh, and he wrote it in 1866. He gave a copy to his sister, Jenny. Uh, and when his sister read it, she, she complained. She was really disappointed that Wash had not included any of the private intimate exchanges that characterized the correspondence, presumably that she had access to. Um, instead, he'd written a narrative about um, unjust treatment and the heroic suffering that he endured in a union prison. 
Um, this conflict between the content of the letters and the memoir led uh, my colleague Evan Kutzler at, the, at Georgia Southwestern State University and I to decide that we wanted to publish the two together, um, the, the, the set of letters and the um, the manuscript and uh, this series for UGA Press was perfect for that because it was really designed for um, classroom uh, education so that students can really get a sense of how the stories we tell about our lives and about the past um, change over time, right? Um, and so this is a little bit of my journey to the book, right? I, I, I wanted to really probe this larger question of what do we do with our experiences, right? What did veterans do with their experiences when they sat down to write what they thought was, quite frankly, legitimate history, right? Um, Wash was among as many as 420,000 soldiers alongside tens of thousands of civilians who were held prisoners during the Civil War. At least 56,000 of them died while in prison. And there's no question that war prisons were dank, deadly, and disease-ridden. For these reasons, they captured the attention of Northern writers and their audiences. Whitman, Melville, and Hawthorne, for example, all wrote about Confederate prisoners. At the same time, um, a thriving union print culture publicized testimonies of barbarous treatment of union prisoners that were held in Confederate prisons. So union readers were getting stuff about, you know, the Southerners in, in places like Rock Island, Illinois, or Fort Delaware, or Johnson's Island, Ohio. And they were also getting stories and drawings by Thomas Nast about their own compatriots who were imprisoned in horrible places um, like the notorious Andersonville prison um, in Southwest Georgia. Um, so by the time of the, the end of the Civil War, um, a, a real print campaign had fomented uh, national outrage over the mismanagement of Andersonville prison, right, by its commander, Henry Wirtz. Henry Wirtz then was tried and convicted of war crimes uh, and executed. Uh, this obviously enraged Southerners. Um, Wirtz's execution created the perfect storm for Southerners to offer a different spin on the topic of imprisonment. Uh, Southern suffering, the spin went in prisons, was equal to, if not worse than nor Northern suffering. In fact, it was heroic suffering. And this was a rather helpful position for prison veterans in particular, who sometimes felt that sitting idly in a prison camp, uh, warding off disease and malnutrition, uh, did not really do much to advance the Confederate cause. Now, their suffering had purpose. Um, though he never said so, perhaps this was top of mind when Wash penned the first draft of his memoir, and his memoir was never published. So if we fast forward more than 10 years later in 1876, Southerners were still talking about wartime prisons. The editor of the most prominent Southern historical journal, which was the arm of the Southern Historical Society, 
um, which was basically a, a, a society charged with gathering all evidence of Southern history and its contribution to the war in particular. Um, the editor of, of that journal wrote, there is perhaps no subject connected with the late war, which more imperatively demands discussion at our hands than the prison question. So hence the title of the book. He thereafter gathered and published hundreds of pages of testimony from individual veterans and published them. Of course, this wasn't the last word of Southerners response to the prison question. They didn't stop talking about, and I, I say talking about, but by that I mean talking about writing, about reading about, I talk about discourse. Um, the discourse about the experiences of Confederates in Union prisons uh, didn't stop for a very long time after 1876. The 1880s saw a proliferation of published memoirs and diaries and regional historical associations continued to collect and publish more testimonies from Confederate veterans. In, 18, in the 1890s, the nationally popular Confederate veteran, and I, I say nationally, it's an important point, um, the Confederate veteran was read widely by Northern veterans as well as Southern. Um, so the nationally popular Confederate veteran published hundreds of articles about the prison question. Uh, they published uh, prison veterans memoirs, poetry, and also book notices and reviews about anything that prisoners had written. Um, uh, most recently, my uh, indefatigable undergraduate research assistant and I um, have collected more than 300 articles about the prison question from the issues of the veteran dated between 1893 and 1901 alone. Um, talk continued, right? Um, in, the, uh, in 1914, um, a group of um, historically minded uh, former Confederates in Tennessee um, sought to interview as many Confederate veterans as they can about as many questions that they thought were important for uh, the historical record. And one of those questions, in fact, was, if you were in prison, talk about the conditions. Um, and I'm in the process of going through that. It's like a six volume published set of um, relatively underused interviews. And then in 1936, American readers read in Gone with the Wind about Ashley Wilkes's suffering in a Northern prison. Uh, and Margaret Mitchell, right, was born in 1900. She certainly had no, quote, memory of heroic prison suffering. She inherited that from the lore handed down to her through Southern culture and its myth history. Over time then, prison writing and the figure of the Confederate prisoner became an important vehicle for disseminating the Southern myth of the lost cause. In short, the lost cause was the popular and widespread belief that the cause of secession was righteous. And that cause was that states' rights and individual rights were too valuable not to defend thus omitting the defense of slavery from the narrative, even though uh, the vice president of the Confederacy in an important speech said that slavery and racial inferiority was the quote, cornerstone of their new nation. This is omitted from the lost cause. And the lost cause ideology um, uh, sort of lionized those who defended the Confederacy and propagated uh, regional hagiographies uh, about them. 
And scholars have shown um, that the lost cause became a sort of civil religion whose creed was espoused at the pulpit as well as in the classrooms, in public commemorations, and in monument dedications. Uh, because these materials right, that echoed the lost cause, that, uh, that perpetuated the lost cause were and still are, importantly, embraced by neo-Confederate polemicists, historians have tended to dismiss these writings, um, particularly from prisoners, um, as cravenly biased portrayals of Northern prisons designed to undercut emancipation and union victory. Um, I think this makes them more, not less, historically significant for their long-term effect on Civil War memory and the American historical landscape. Uh, and at the end of this talk, we in the questions we can we can in fact talk about um, current reasons why that's the case. Um, so. My book uh, follows the um, movement of ideas about prisons from within Union prisons uh, to the homes of readers of prisoners published works and their families and of magazines like the veterans. So I'm just going to just really quickly go through what the book um, structure tentatively looks like. Um, so obviously we're gonna, it begins in war and I begin focusing on, with a focus on what life in, um, in, in Confederate or in Union prisons was like and the connections between the home front and prisoners through letters and through um, the press. Uh, so that's sort of the, the opening to the book. Um, and then I focus on um, the many ways in which um, prisoners began narrating, again in letters and in diaries um, mostly, uh, their captivity. Um, and narrate they did. I have done um, archival research in, um, in, in, a, in a lot of archives uh, by this point, and the letters from prisoners um, are incredibly rich and they're everywhere. Um, and they are all about narrating the experience. Um, the book then moves on to um, reconstruction and its aftermath. Um, this, the third chapter deals with the ways in which uh, former prisoners and their families curated the wartime documents that they saved. Um, what uses did they make of them? Uh, did they turn them into, um, and into publications and so forth? Um, and some of them in fact did. And I'm gonna tell you a little bit about this. And most of my talk is going to combine chapter two narrating and chapter four printing. Um, and a little bit of chapter five, which is reading. Um, who read, who read uh, the things that the prisoners published and how did they receive them? What did they do for veterans? Um, the final part of the book, um, which is what I'm still um, uh, reading deeply about uh, and deeply in the sources, is about the moment of reconciliation after Reconstruction, when uh, in the 1890s, former Confederate veterans, or former Confederates and former uh, and Union veterans uh, find some common ground in their shared suffering in war. Um, and a chapter on reflecting uh, looks at uh, the, the sort of surprising um, uh, sort of acknowledgement, right, that 
there was suffering on quote both sides and it would be okay to memorialize a uh, you know a cemetery to dedicate a cemetery in Andersonville for Union soldiers and likewise to erect statues in the north for Confederate veterans and so um, that is uh, the very very unformed end of the book um, so oh we're not ready for him yet um, so at the center of all of this uh, is the relationship between narrative and memory seen in the choices that authors make as they sift through memories, their memories and others' memories. Uh, the tension between narrative and memory guides my research and the sources that I'm working with. Um, I, in particular, the central questions that are on my mind um, are these. One, what is an intellectual history of memory? And two, how did prisoners of war shape the collective memory and ultimately the de facto Southern history of the Civil War? I think historians have generally overlooked a connection between intellectual history and memory studies. Um, the social uses of Confederate memory have been central to the work on public commemoration and Civil War pr uh, prisons have been a part of that scholarship. Uh, these historians tend to rely on Pierre Nora's term memory sites, and I'm thinking about uh, how Abigail um, recently talked about that in her own talk, and um, I was so glad that she introduced that concept to our group. Um, and these scholars show how individuals and groups, especially um, uh, commemorative organizations such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Sons of the Confederate Veterans, commemorated the war with statues and public ceremonies. They rallied around and still rally around these and other memory sites in order to never forget the cause for which they seceded, fought, and died. I think it's useful to build on this work by emphasizing what intellectual historians and scholars of memory share in common, uh, which is narrative. The stories individuals and groups tell to make sense of their world. Prisoners began telling their stories in prison. The intellectual culture of Union prisons, while it varied from uh, prison to prison, created a foundation for the memory work that made post-war literature possible in the first place. And in particular, camaraderie among those prisoners um, in the midst of trauma helped to keep the mind alive, making such work possible and even meaningful. Um, letter upon letter in the archive of, of prisoners uh, shows prisoners saying things like, all we have time to do is sit and think. All we have time to do is sit and worry. All we have to time to do is, is read. We need paper, send paper. So this sort of use of their time in captivity um, was, was meaningful. Uh, rather than place or ritual though, I think texts and genre are central to intellectual history for the reasons that Wash's editorial decisions about his memoir suggests. For prisoners like Wash Nelson, wartime memory became a perception or began with a perception or a thought or a feeling in prison. Some men found words for, for, for these things, but not all of them did but the words that some men found took on life of their own in prison first and became public after the war. And prison writing allows us to trace this process, which is just as important as the final product. 
And here's where I think it's important to distinguish between how my use of prison writing differs from that of other historians. Whereas generations of Civil War historians have conventionally mined letters and diaries to enliven a study about soldiers and war, I view these sources as genre. Um, in this way, I, I really depend on and follow the lead from literary scholars who have studied, studied prison writing as genre for decades, if not centuries. And I'm sure that we can all think of a number of famous pieces of literature written in prison. Uh, they exist, carceral studies show us, because prisons themselves can be viewed as sites of knowledge production and dissemination. So with this context in mind, I'm gonna share a case study that illustrates this entire trajectory from wartime imagination to post-war publication um, and even fleeting celebrity. So I wanna introduce you to, uh -oh. oh, I have to click through all this, Isaac Handy. Uh, Reverend Isaac W.K. Handy. Um, he did not enlist, yeah, I don't know why I didn't put this in, okay, sorry. Uh, a Virginian, he was from Portsmouth, Virginia. Um, he was a Presbyterian minister. He didn't enlist to fight in the Civil War, but his eldest son, Frederick, did. Um, and his, his daughter counted currency for the, um, for the Confederacy. Um, so they were tied with the Confederate project. Um, Handy remained at home with his wife, Rebecca, and his congregation, which he led through the war. He didn't hesitate to say that he believed secession was righteous and that he supported the Confederacy. Um, in June, 1863, this became more complicated for him because the Union occupied his town, Portsmouth, and the surrounding area. Um, Handy, um, not soon after the occupation, managed to obtain permission to travel to Delaware to visit his family in Port Penn. Um, but not, longer not long after he arrived, a newspaper reported that Handy public disparaged the American flag while in Delaware, um, an allegation that Handy challenged the rest of his life. But nonetheless, he was arrested and sent to Fort Delaware prison located on Peapatch Island in the middle of the Delaware River. Uh, Fort Delaware was a federal fortress built in the 1850s and it began holding Confederate prisoners in July, 1861. As months turned into years, the number of men imprisoned grew from dozens to hundreds and ultimately thousands. By 1864, when Handy arrived at Fort Delaware, he encountered an assortment of men, young and old, enlisted and officers, educated men and those who were barely literate, political prisoners and war captives, and Northerners who fought for the Confederacy. They lived in crowded barracks while, quote, blue-coated sentries walked along the parapet uh, or fence monitoring them. There were gentlemen there, like Handy, uh, but also, quote, roughs uh, who gambled, drank, and brawled. Some men kept to themselves, others became friends, and as in camp, a sense of community pervaded the prison. Isaac Handy helped shape this community. He led worship services, preached, tended the sick, performed baptisms, 
counseled hopeless captives and helped to found a religious society within Fort Delaware called the Confederate States Christian Association. He kept a record of prison life in his diary, uh, which ultimately uh, number 28 manuscript volumes, which are all held at the William Clements Library at the University of Michigan. Um, it was written to preserve the memory of events, uh, events, he later wrote, chiefly for my own satisfaction and the information of my children. But his efforts to preserve memories did not stop with his diary. When he began to anticipate his release, he circulated an autograph album in which prisoners not only signed their names, but also wrote poetry, letters, and reminiscences. Oops. So um, photograph albums were surprisingly popular in nearly every Union prison. So here are some images of, of two different autograph albums. One is from Johnson's Island Prison, which was largely a prison for um, Confederate officers off the banks of San, uh, 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 Lake Erie. Um, and then this one, oh, the sharing thing is on it. I can't read what I said it is. Oh, well, I don't know where that one is from. Uh, I think this one is also from Johnson's Island. Um, and prisoners got pretty creative. You can see this one was, uh, the one to the right uh, was embellished with drawings, uh, with a drawing of a, a peaceful bird, I suppose. Um, and oops. Handy um, was also a little creative with his autograph album. Uh, and here we have on the front piece, or the front page here, um, a lonely prisoner, right? Um, and you can see here, um, they're not just autograph albums for autographs. Um, we learn a lot about the, the company that, uh, that Handy kept uh, from, from the stories that they tell about themselves in the autograph books. Um, in addition to um, circulating the autograph albums, Handy solicited personal recollections from friends uh, in prison who returned pages of memories and response, reminiscences as they called them. Um, a decade after um, uh, Handy's release in October 1864, um, Turnbull Brothers of Baltimore published his diary. Uh, as United States bonds or duress by federal authority. And it's the most detailed published diary from a Confederate prisoner of war, but it's scarcely cited in the literature um, on Confederate prisoners and veterans or in intellectual, uh, Civil War intellectual history at all. And so perhaps historians have listened too much to Melville and Hawthorne. Uh, here's what Melville had to say about the life of the mind in, in a Union prison. Listless, the Confederate prisoner, he eyes the palisades and sentries in the glare. Tis barren as a pelican beach, but his world is ended there. Nothing to do in vacant hands bring on the idiot pain. He tries to think, to recollect, but the blur is on the brain. Around him swarm the plaining ghosts like those on Virgil's shore, a wilderness of faces dim and pale ones gashed in horror. The blur is on the brain uh, is a fascinating way to think about um, the opportunity 
for intellectual engagement that the unique isolation and uh, suffering of prison uh, and its effect on individuals' ability to process what they're talking about. And in fact, it's this trauma, I think, that Hawthorne is smart to underscore, uh, by which I mean Melville, is, um, is right to underscore because it pre created the emotional context for a need for camaraderie, a need for doing something, creating something, thinking about something, in a sense, mentally escaping um, so that they actually don't become those planing ghosts on Virgil's shore. So Handy and his compatriots paint a slightly different picture in terms of what they do with their time. Um, prisoners thought deeply about how they would be memorialized individually and collectively and how they ought to memorialize their fallen comrades. So I've spent a lot of time really noticing um, the historical consciousness of these men, um, aware of their moment, aware of their mortality, and how to process that while in prison. So in addition to his own sense of personal righteousness, Isaac Handy believed that by virtue of imprisonment, Confederate prisoners are martyrs in a righteous cause. Their brethren of the South will but revere them more. Their children will praise them when they are dead. An impartial history will give them a page gilded with glory. Worried that history might never fully recognize the Confederate effort, these prisoners put their stock in the power of social memory. Not surprisingly, the organization that Handy founded, the Confederate States Christian Association, offered opportunities for members to do this work. In February 1865, the secretary of the organization read aloud original poetry written in memory of a fallen friend. In March 1865, the association noted the death of one of their members, quote, who died in the hospital on this island and resolved to send his family the preamble about his character. The statement, the preamble described the soldier as a quote, gallant officer and quote, a truly humble, sincere and devoted follower of the cross. Handy encouraged his fellow prisoners um, to historicize their memory of war and imprisonment. When Handy had heard rumors about his release, he asked friends to write quote, personal histories of capture, arrest, and imprisonment and share them with him. Uh, they responded enthusiastically and Handy received at least 10 reminiscences that ranged in length from a few pages to more than 40 pages. Uh, the one with 40 pages, uh, pages was blissfully clear, um, unlike Handy's own handwriting, which uh, made a long summer. Some authors began by recalling their childhood, telling family histories before moving on to their role in the Civil War. Others wrote only about their captured imprisonment. In July, 1864, William F. Gordon, a fellow political prisoner, wrote at Handy's request for reminiscences of his participation in the Civil War and experiences of imprisonment. Forgive the necessary egotism of such an individual history, he wrote, before outlining how he was moved to support the Confederate cause and encroachments upon, quote, states' rights italicized, um, well, underlined in the manuscript. Um, the fact remembered will explain much of what follows of his story, he explained. 
And then he narrated the drama of his involvement in the Civil War beginning in May 1861, when he joined a local company in Clarksburg, Virginia, and left his wife and children uh, as they stood on the front porch waving him off to war. He recalled the voices of his son and wife, quote, ringing in my ear, and he was, quote, marched away. Come back, Pa, and God bless you and protect you, husband, he remembered hearing. After a year, he wrote, he had received not a line from his family except a letter from his wife to his aunt after 14 months. So perhaps he was writing with his private journal nearby or he remembered precise states particularly well, such as when he waded through waist deep snow down Pickle Knob before reaching West Fork River on March 6, when he was allowed furlough and fell into his wife Molly's embrace. Bright big day in my calendar, he wrote. Ultimately, he was captured by enemies and sent to Harper's Ferry under close guard and was sent next to Fort McHenry and placed in close confinement on espionage charges. He remembered the exact size of the room and he shared uh, that he shared with two fellow sufferers, to use his language. Uh, and he said that that room was uh, 12 by 14 feet. In July, 1863, his jailer sent him to Fort Delaware um, and uh, that is where he met Hanvey. Uh, it's important to note that some of these memories were more painful for Gordon to recollect than others, though his promise to share his story outweighed the trauma they caused. In 1863, Gordon was sent sentenced to die. Must I go, he wrote, over the sickening past few months? Uh, must I tell the history of how I was condemned to be shot? The conversation in which the enemy captors denounced me as the representative of a rapscallion army clothed in the hated garb of treason. Writing about his sentencing led him to recall the state of affairs that led to the war in the first place. Must I go back again and again mourn our degeneracy as a race? As he told the story, Gordon scratched through words and rewrote sections of the memoir as he worked to give his voice the most dramatic tone. He described his solitary confinement in a cold, damp cell, three by seven, manacled with a tub at my feet for nature and a guard at my head for security, then scratched through guard and replaced it with gun. Gordon was spared though. In May, 1864, the sentence was lifted quote, the only bright star in the history he recalled, he wrote, uh, was Isaac Handy's friendship and ministry at Fort Delaware. I will never forget it, he wrote. Now, David Blight has argued that most Civil War historians did not readily talk or write about their confined emotions in the immediate post-war period, but they did leave many impressions of their burdens of memory. That's a quotation. William Gordon was indeed burdened with memory, and so were others. Reluctance to offer a complete wartime memory after Confederate defeat, however, underscores the important ways prisoners thought about curating the memories, their memories for usefulness after the war. Their memories constituted first attempts at a composing war narratives, the public texts that should be of interest to intellectual historians, but often fall through the cracks. Many prisoners who took up their pens to write were conscious and indeed hopeful that their prison writings would survive. Isaac Handy's painstaking efforts to detail his time in prison testifies to these transformations and to the value of wartime memory to the post-war Southern literary marketplace. 
His wartime correspondence suggests that early in the war, he anticipated recording its history and imprisonment all but guaranteed that he would put pen to paper. But he did not begin publishing his multi-volume prison diary immediately. After his release in the war's end, he put most of his energy behind finishing a family genealogy he had begun before the war. Um, he actually um, never published it uh, before his death. Um, instead, his weighty prison diary, United States Bonds, became his only published book. Um, the road to publication wasn't easy for Handy. He did not get along with his publisher at all. Uh, he worried they never advocated for the work strongly enough, and I know how that feels. Um, yet even the best author-editor relationship would have felt economic stress in 1873 uh, when they tried to sell it. In a publishing climate where authors first collected subscriptions, that is buying a book basically before its publication in order to fund its printing, many prospective readers hesitated to invest their money when financial panic hit. Handy also encountered resistance among those who believed the timing was terrible. Um, I'm afraid you are too late coming out with it, wrote one Delaware man. Quote, people want to forget the cruel war. Um, nevertheless, between July 1873 and April 1874, Turnbull Brothers published advertisements for United States bonds and Southern newspapers in which they solicited, quote, 1,000 first-class book agents to sell United States bonds. The Circular also publicized a biography of Robert E. Lee written by Leeds aide-de-camp Charles Marshall. Uh, Turnbull Brothers, of course, explicitly courted lost cause readers. The publisher's note for a November 1873 Circular called on, quote, friends of the all caps lost cause to order the book. Handy's regional prominence also helped um, sell the book. He relied on his own personal connections to local publishers, including those at the Richmond Dispatch, where his son Moses worked for some time. The Dispatch advertised the book as, quote, the first complete record of Confederate prison life given to the public since the war, end quote, and noted that book agents, agents were canvassing Virginia's cities. And Handy also published his own adver advertisements. Um, although uh, the Southern friendly New York world purportedly published a favorable review of United States bonds, mostly Southern newspapers advertised for it. Handy also relied on religious publications, including those within his broader Presbyterian network. One veteran read about the book in such a publication called The Southern Churchman. Um, James McKemmy, a fellow Virginian and prison veteran, learned of the diary um, in the columns of the Central Presbyterian. And he said that, um, uh, according to McKemmy, Handy, quote, called upon all the prisoners who were confined at Fort Delaware to express their willingness by way of encouraging you to prepare and have published a journal of all the important events. He assured Handy, quote, I think every prisoner will be anxious to obtain a copy of the book. Perspective readers also showed keen interest in the book um, and offered varying perspectives on its significance. Um, McKemmy thought that it would be particularly useful for and interesting for Southern readers, individuals to, uh, with connections to any Confederate prisoner of war also expressed interest in the book. And the wife of a former Fort Delaware prison wrote to Handy saying she was anxious for a copy um, to learn more 
um, about a family member. Um, the prospect of Handy's book awakened wartime memories and put erstwhile comrades in touch with one another. When William F. Gordon wrote his memoir for Handy while in prison, um, and uh, he came across the prospectus for Handy's book in the Cumberland Presbyterian in February 1873, he wrote that he never stopped thinking about his prison friendship with Handy. I often take down your picture, he confessed, and while gazing on those well-remembered features, my mind runs back and is vividly refreshed with those old times. Similarly, another prisoner, when he discovered the quote, welcome prospectus of Handy's book in a Kentucky paper, he wrote, I had often thought of, but could never hear of you since I left our boarding house at Fort Delaware. It was a pleasure to hear of you again. Prisoners often viewed the prospect about a book on prison life as proxy for seeing one another and discovering advertisements in print started that conversation. And many uh, former prisoners uh, wrote in letters to Handy that they noticed the, the, the advertisement and wanted to stroll down memory lane and to pick up correspondence. In defeat, a book like Handy's also offered some small measure of vindication. One veteran wrote Handy promising to do everything as powered from, to promote United States bonds. Quote, I have long felt that justice and even necessity demanded a calm and truthful narration of the sufferings and wrongs of our gallant soldiers who were so unfortunate as to fall into the hands of the enemy. And I know of no better hand than your own to write that sad history. As years pass, names like Isaac Handy faded from view, especially as popular periodicals increasingly emphasized martial heroism of Confederate leaders. And so also did the blame game between regions that fueled the Wartz trial and its fallout in the former Confederacy subside. Instead, prison veterans of the 1890s and beyond, just like veterans generally, found common ground with erstwhile enemies as having been subject to the suffering of war period, not a war to end slavery, not a war to protect union, not a war for independence, but a brutal war. Research into the Confederate veteran, which I'm still working through very slowly, along with research into Northern newspapers confirms what historians have argued about this phenomenon of shared suffering. It helped the lost cause explanation of war creep into national consciousness. So, uh, I'm gonna end here acknowledging that we're at 1247, just with a few uh, final comments. Um, while the book is still very much a work in progress, I do feel comfortable sort of talking about two main findings. Um, one, for specialists, this work contributes to an ongoing effort to understand Civil War soldiers and veterans beyond the neat categories we've created for them, hero, villain, coward, martyr, and victim. Uh, instead, viewing them as men with stories to share helps us to more fully understand the complicated nature of 19th century masculinity in wartime, and that's a theme that uh, the book will uh, follow. Um, Finding number two, or perhaps a caution and a nod to our current moment. Um, sometimes it's not immediately clear when memory moves into history and reshapes the historical narrative, uh, but it's always an intentional act with broad repercussions. 
Uh, indeed, the problem of Confederate memory, to reference my, well, I don't think, very good title for this talk, to be honest, uh, is that it remains a powerful cultural force in the United States now, uh, more than 150 years after the Civil War and Reconstruction. We've seen a surge of opinion essays in mainstream media about Trump's loss caused, for example. And just today, Senate Republicans blocked a commission to explore the January 6th insurrection, a frightening moment in our nation's history in which the Confederate flag was actually flown in the Capitol. Uh, the narrative seems so important that memory of it ought not to be scrutinized. Um, so if the post-war loss causes any indication favoring some memories over history have dire consequences, but it's important for us to dig deeply and in ways I hope that the book will do into how that process takes place. And um, I'll, I'll end there. Thanks so much, Tim. Uh, fascinating project. Thanks for sharing it with us today. Again, let me uh, urge uh, our audience members, if you have questions for Tim, please uh, type them into the chat and I will share them. Tim, I'll start off and let me ask you this. Um, can you share with us one uh, experience in your process of doing this research that really surprised you? Something that you discovered that really uh, reframed your thinking or that you weren't expecting? Um, yeah, uh, I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't expecting all of the fan mail that, uh, that Isaac Handy got for his book. Um, and that really sort of reshaped the questions that I'm going to ask, um, that I am asking and that I'm writing about in the second half of the book. Um, because in addition to Handy's book, um, prison veterans wrote um, uh, fiction, right? Sort of autobiographical fiction about their experience. Here I'm thinking about Sidney um, Lanier, uh, which may seem familiar if there are any um, Americanist literary studies here. Um, uh, and, but, and also um, uh, other, other memoirs and diaries. And so this world of reception in fan mail was really cool to see. And also it led me to, to want to look at the reception in the press um, and really focus that post-war part of the book on book reviews, uh, which thanks to digital uh, databases is incredibly uh, fun actually. So the next question is from Steve Bita, and he asks, uh, he says, for a really interesting talk, David Blight has put a lot of emphasis on veterans reunions as a site where reconciliationist narratives took hold, the narrative of shared suffering, for example. Out of curiosity, do prison veterans also organize reunions? And if so, how do those reunions interact with some of the uh, writing that you are exploring in your book? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, uh, they do organize reunions in the 1890s um, and they're often um, combined with um, the sort of dedication of a cemetery um, or a monument. And uh, I, I, that's what I was, I think that's what I'm trying to, to work on with this um, sort of half-baked end of the book uh, about, you know, how how does how does this reconciliation take place uniquely among prisoners? Um, and I don't quite have an answer to that yet. Um, but there are articles in in uh, publications like the Confederate Veteran and the Blue and the Gray um, that 
say, you know, why is so-and-so, why did so-and-so recently bring up this issue about conditions? Are we not over that yet? Um, and so there's some back and forth uh, within responses in these periodicals. Um, and I, I'm just now really digging into that. Uh, so the next question is from Vera Keller. Uh, questions about one prison and two questions. It seems obvious from Handy's published book title that the prison serves as a metaphor for the claim for federal deprivation of states' rights, thus making the prison a stand-in for the Confederacy in general being in the national prison, and thus making a claim for moral equivalency of the removal of rights through the imprisonment of slavery. Do you see other ways that the prison versus other forms of wartime suffering like uh, for example, wounded and sick veterans, serves as a uniquely as uniquely useful in this particular setting as a metaphor for federal tyranny. Yeah, um, that's a that is a great observation and um, one that I, I want you to write down and send to me. <laughs> it's great. Um, I think that right in Handy's title, right, is uh, this 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 not just an equivalency with um, with federal tyranny, right, but also an equivalency with uh, the, the nation's original sin of slavery, right? Um, bondage has a particular meaning for, uh, for uh, Confederates who are in prison, and there is a lot to say about the invisible place, right, of, uh, of Black guards in these places, um, and uh, so I think that's one of the, the things. And I, I think that what makes prisons perhaps more unique than other settings is the fact that they can't go anywhere, right? They can't go anywhere because by 1863, whatever sort of exchange cartel existed between the two armies had pretty much uh, collapsed. And so prisons became um, holding pens, like huge sprawling holding pens uh, where people just sat and thought, worried, vomited, <laughs> um, went to hospital. In fact, the hospitals became the places that prisoners wanted to go. So I think that um, that's definitely an area worth exploring uh, in terms of looking at the different places uh, that, are, that are comparable. So Vera's second question is about question. What is the question of the prison question? It seems like the narratives that are published present a fairly clear view of the past, even if it is a mythical one. What was being debated in publications on the prison question? Yeah, so everything from precise numbers of deaths to precise numbers of um, illnesses to questions about, in the case of warts, um, neglect, um, uh, misuse or misapplication of law. Um, and many of these people who are engaging in the question, want to know about the question of the legality of the imprisonment to begin with. And at what point does imprisonment on either side um, violate the, the laws of war? Um, and I, I think that that's one of the most sort of important things uh, in the, 
when they're still sort of litigating this in the Confederate veteran in the 1890s, people say, okay, we've heard enough about prison conditions. Yes, it was bad, but we need hard historical evidence of wrongdoing. And then they'll go and publish excerpts of things. And well, Wirtz didn't interpret Lincoln's order to do X. So they're actually doing, you know, they're doing some amateur historical work, right? Um, so the next question is from Brett Rushforth. How do you balance the humane treatment of your subjects with the need to underscore the racist violence they had committed themselves to? Yeah. Um, the humane treatment of my subjects. Um, I mean, that is an in that is perhaps the hardest question, Brett, um, that uh, we can ask. Um, and I think that um, it comes down to the difference between sort of sympathy, right? And just analysis, right? So, um, I need to do some more reading, frankly, in, um, say, you know, the studies of what motivated um, perpetrators of the Holocaust, for example, which seems to me to be um, in many ways, the kind of literature that would help me ground an answer to that question. Um, and what then might the difference be between looking at people who perpetrate and fight for the wrong cause, right? Or is, you know, what what is, what what needs to be done there, right? How do I need to, I, I don't have a clear answer to that. Um, you know, I'm wed to the historical record. Um, I'm, re I'm wed to what the people say. Um, and uh, that's the sort of easy answer. Of course, there are also the silences that have to be explored. Um, so the next question is from uh, Marsha Weisecker who asks, uh, who, museums and historic sites are designed to interpret collective memory. The National Park Service interprets the Union POW experience at Andersonville. Is there something comparable that articulates the experiences you are explicating at a northern prison? Um, the most, uh, no, yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say no immediately. Um, Johnson's Island uh, is like a resort community now. They have a cemetery. Um, interestingly, though, during the Chicago World's Fair, um, Libby Prison, um, Libby Prison, am I right? No, Camp Douglas um, was used um, as a as a as a museum, um, and uh, I think a lot of these sort of commemorative uh, these sort of commemorative sites. Um, were replaced at least in the Southern uh, public history landscape by house museums. And um, I'm thinking about like the um, Confederate um, sort of reading room in um, a museum in, in Columbia. Um, but no, not the equivalent to my knowledge. Uh, the next question is from Linda Long. Uh, is there any relationship between prisoners curating their memoirs and the work of Southern women through clubs and auxiliaries to glorify Confederate traditions and therefore white supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
a lot of the um, a lot of the the materials that I've used exist in collections because of the Daughters of the Confederacy and their their um, their efforts to collect the uh, the history of the war. Um, and um, and so yeah, that that's um, that's definitely a part of the the book that um, I'm really eager to explore, and I'm eager to explore it not just for the reasons that you um, you mentioned, Linda, uh, which are super important, but also because we know very little about. Um, the extent to which women in the women, northern women, in fact, union women and southern women tried to engage with prisoners during their captivity um, at, at, in sympathetic ways um, in order to get them food and the extent to which that women asserted their, um, their authority as citizens in writing to um, not just uh, prison um, commanders, but like the secretary of war and the president saying, I demand that you get this box here. And I think that that's actually the key, right? To um, trying to make sense out of, okay, what creates a captive audience for these stories in the first place, right? Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the engagement of, of women during wartime with prisoners and with um, the prison question. Um, and then later those women who, um, who uh, become members of um, Confederate organizations. So the next um, comment is, is not a question, it's a comment from Barbara Mossberg who points out that um, your project puts light on how women such as Emily Dickinson took Chronicles and other publications and incorporated in, in Dickinson's case into her own poetry, including her own identification as a prisoner and captive in scores of her most iconic poems. And it, this comment, uh, Barbara's comment makes me wonder about this larger question, which you mentioned throughout about the use of um, other kinds of sources to create the genre of, of, of uh, published memoirs, uh, like the use of kind of documents uh, to, to lend um, memoir the kind of authority of history. And I'm just wondering, you know, that's where you got to at the end of your talk. You might say a little bit more about that, specifically the process of how memoir becomes history. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, my gut, my gut reaction to that question um, is that it's um, that this is not yet an age of academic history. And so it's easier, right, for literate um, uh, Americans to um, take something as memoir as history, right? And I think that, um, you know, I've, I've written um, a little bit now about two, uh, in a totally unrelated project, um, two different novelists who, um, really sort of fictionalize their own autobiographies. Uh, one uh, who never fought in the Civil War, it's very clear that he's writing his autobiography, but he turns himself into a Confederate hero. Um, and then, you know, escapes with his uh, Cuban half-sister, long story, very complicated, involves a shipwreck, to Cuba, uh, where they uh, mourn the slave society that he fought for, but didn't fight for. 
Um, and then, uh, so I think, and then uh, Sydney Lanier's Tiger Lilies is also, um, you know, it's an anti-war novel from a secessionist and, uh, a, 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 you know, an unreconstructed Southerner. Um, and, you know, the most popular parts of that book, according to, um, according to reviewers, were the prison scenes. Uh, which they were recommend they recommended those pr the, those prison scenes as the reason to read the book because it's a terrible novel. <laughs> All right, Tim, um, we've come to the end of our questions and we've just come to the end of our time. So I want to thank you so much again for sharing this fascinating work with us, and I want to thank our uh, guests who have joined us to hear about your fascinating work. Uh, we really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center and our upcoming sponsored events, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu, and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much.